book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Last Sunday we began this chapter, and in chapter 15, we see how and why God rejects Saul as Israel's king, which means the stage is then set for God to choose a king after his own heart. We know him to be David. This chapter begins with the direct and clear instructions from the Lord through his prophet Samuel to Saul about what exactly he should do concerning the Amalekites in verses 1 through 3. And then we read what exactly Saul did in verses 4 through 9, followed by the Lord's perspective that he communicated to Samuel in verse 10. Then we see Samuel's personal agitation. It's not really the greatest way to say that, but he was obviously distraught in so many ways when he heard what God wanted him to tell uh, Saul. And that's followed by one of the Bible's most incredible confrontations. And the confrontation is between Samuel and Saul, the defiant king. Today we will cover the first half of this confrontation, going through verse 23. As we step back into this tragic drama, we must keep several things in mind. First, what matters in this chapter is whether the king will submit to and obey the Lord. And this was not only difficult for Saul, but it's difficult for us to swallow when we see exactly what the Lord had instructed him to do. In verses 15, 1 through 3, we read, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God is punishing the Amalekites, a nomadic people south of Israel who were descended from Esau, for what they did to Israel right after the exodus from Egypt when Israel was passing through the desert. Amalek attacked the Israelites even before Israel got to Sinai. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 25 this, They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land, The Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. 
blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven, do not forget. So in God's timing, the day had come for Amalek's judgment at the hand of King Saul. The basis for the king of the Amalekites, Agag, the basis for his execution is given in verse 33 of our text today. When God gives them 300 years to repent, isn't that enough time? In God's purview, yes it is. So the purpose of Saul's offensive was actually divine judgment. And as expressed here in chapter 15, Amalek had continued her wickedness all this time. And the measure of God's wrath was now full. Second, we should also note here that the only kind of holy war condoned today for believers is spiritual. As Paul explains in Ephesians 6. In other words, no nation today has the authority or the right to comprehensively devote to destruction an enemy, and here's the key, in God's name. As in the Old Testament. Third thing we should keep in mind is God's wrath upon those who rebel against him is just as much a feature of the gospel as his blessings of salvation and eternal life on those who believe in Christ. And we must remember that and see this in that perspective, this Old Testament perspective of a nation that God called to himself where he was the king. And that is not true of any other people in our time. Christians must grasp and embrace the full purpose of history to make sense of any part of history. And there's no way any of us can read this and just go, well, that's great. This is serious. This is hard to swallow. And so we've got to get the big picture in order to see how this fits into that big picture. Well, what is the big picture? What is the full purpose of history? Maybe you've never asked that question. It's also extremely important as we follow through the current Sunday school for the next couple of weeks. Something that we have to deal with and think about. Well, the full purpose of history is that God might be glorified so that the perfections of the glories of all the attributes of God might be known and displayed to human beings and angelic beings. Attributes of God such as holiness, mercy, Justice, forbearance, 
love, and wrath. God is glorified by means of a history in which he displays his full hatred of sin, even while displaying such boundless grace in saving sinners through the death of Christ. That is a fabulous definition of what the big picture, the full purpose of history is. Did you notice there's a lot missing in there that we would put? That God might be glorified so that the perfections of the glories of all of his attributes might be known and displayed to all people, earth and heavenly angelic beings. That's the purpose. So, Saul did not and would not obey the Lord completely. When he took matters into his own hands in chapter 13, the Lord let him know that he would not have a reigning dynasty. That's part one. We've reached part two, almost. Yes, we will. Verse 23 says it. Here in chapter 15, his disobedience will result in the Lord's complete rejection of him as king. So first, God lets him know there's no dynasty that will follow him. And now, now he has been rejected. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 15, verses 12 through 23. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Verses book of First Samuel, First Samuel chapter fifteen. Last Sunday we began this chapter, and in chapter fifteen we see how and why God rejects Saul as Israel's king which means the stage is then set for God to choose a king after his own heart. We know him to be David. This chapter begins with the direct and clear instructions from the Lord through his prophet Samuel to Saul about what exactly he should do concerning the Amalekites. In verses 1 through 3. And then we read what exactly Saul did in verses 4 through 9. Followed by the Lord's perspective that he communicated to Samuel in verse 10. Then we see Samuel's personal agitation. It's not really the greatest way to say that, but... He was obviously distraught in so many ways when he heard what God wanted him to tell uh, Saul. And that's followed by one of the Bible's most incredible confrontations. And the confrontation is between Samuel and Saul, the defiant king. Today we will cover the first half of this confrontation going through verse 23. 
As we step back into this tragic drama, we must keep several things in mind. First, what matters in this chapter is whether the king will submit to and obey the Lord. And this was not only difficult for Saul, but it's difficult for us to swallow when we see exactly what the Lord had instructed him to do. In verses 15, 1 through 3, we read, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God is punishing the Amalekites, a nomadic people south of Israel who were descended from Esau, for what they did to Israel right after the exodus from Egypt when Israel was passing through the desert. Amalek attacked the Israelites even before Israel got to Sinai. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 25 this, They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land, the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven, do not forget. So in God's timing, the day had come for Amalek's judgment at the hand of King Saul. The basis for the king of the Amalekites, Agag, the basis for his execution is given in verse 33 of our text today. When God gives them 300 years to repent, isn't that enough time? In God's purview, yes it is. So the purpose of Saul's offensive was actually divine judgment. And as expressed here in chapter 15, Amalek had continued her wickedness all this time. And the measure of God's wrath was now full. Second, we should also note here that the only kind of holy war condoned today for believers is spiritual. As Paul explains in Ephesians 6. In other words, no nation today has the authority or the right to comprehensively devote to destruction an enemy, and here's the key, in God's name. as in the Old Testament. Third thing we should keep in mind is 
God's wrath upon those who rebel against him is just as much a feature of the gospel as his blessings of salvation and eternal life on those who believe in Christ. And we must remember that and see this in that perspective, this Old Testament perspective of a nation that God called to himself where he was the king. And that is not true of any other people in our time. Christians must grasp and embrace the full purpose of history to make sense of any part of history. And there's no way any of us can read this and just go, well, that's great. This is serious. This is hard to swallow. And so we've got to get the big picture in order to see how this fits into that big picture. Well, what is the big picture? What is the full purpose of history? Maybe you've never asked that question. It's also extremely important as we follow through the current Sunday school for the next couple of weeks. Something that we have to deal with and think about. Well, the full purpose of history is that God might be glorified so that the perfections of the glories of all the attributes of God might be known and displayed to human beings and angelic beings. Attributes of God such as holiness, mercy, Justice, forbearance, love, and wrath. God is glorified by means of a history in which he displays his full hatred of sin, even while displaying such boundless grace in saving sinners through the death of Christ. That is a fabulous definition of what the big picture, the full purpose of history is. Did you notice there's a lot missing in there that we would put? That God might be glorified so that the perfections of the glories of all of his attributes might be known and displayed to all people, earth and heavenly angelic beings that's the purpose so Saul did not and would not obey the Lord completely when he took matters into his own hands in chapter 13 the Lord let him know that he would not have a reigning dynasty that's part one We've reached part two, almost. Yes, we will. Verse 23 says it. Here in chapter 15, his disobedience will result in the Lord's complete rejection of him as king. So first, God lets him know there's no dynasty that will follow him. And now, now he has been rejected. 
If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 15, verses 12 through 23. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Verses. Devote to destruction is a horrid term. It means to kill all living things that have been designated to be killed. Samuel had heard enough here. Either growing up or you as a parent have have done this. Just stop! Stop! Most of us would utter something else that you're not supposed to say in your home. Stop works. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said, Okay, speak. Go ahead. At this point, Samuel reiterated how God had anointed Saul king over Israel. Saying, Saul, I'm I'm the one that, remember that God called to be the one to anoint you as king. And then he also reminded him that God had sent him on this mission against the Amalekites. And this is followed by the next big questions. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Got right to the point. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then we see one of the most incredibly true and realistic progressions of excuses ever written. In fact, you could write this verbatim on on something and stick it on your wall or your refrigerator just to check so that if you're raising those little ones and they start this, you can just go, yep, this is what Saul said. Yep, this is what Saul said. Yep, this is what Saul said. Because... Here we go. The first thing he says is, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have obeyed. The next thing he says is, I have gone on the mission. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. The third thing he says is, but the people, the people are the ones who took the spoiled sheep and oxen. And the fourth thing he says, and, but the best of the things, the best, the best we saved. We saved so that we could offer them as a sacrifice to God. In other words, I did obey. I completed 95% of what the Lord told me to do. It was the people's fault, and I was going to sacrifice the best to the Lord. Do those things sound familiar? They sound very familiar. It's like we're ingrained. It's our default reactions when we know that we have turned off and gone the wrong way. Every one of us. Some of us are a little more creative in how we carry this out. But basically, isn't that it? I did obey. Yeah. I I completed 95%. And we've been taught that, 
well, it used to be 70% was passing, now it's probably 50. But, you know, as long as you've got a majority of, oh, that gets me in. I mean, I did obey. I did most of it. Well, yeah, but there's this one really obvious thing about, you know, yeah, but somebody else did that. They talked me into it, or I just put up with them because I was being merciful. And merciful, in, in being merciful, a quality of God, I mean, you know, they did it. But they did it. He did it. She did it. They made me do it. The last one, though, is especially for church people. Well, I was going to sacrifice the best of the Lord. I mean, that was, that was our intent. That's, that's why they're here. Saul gives it away when he says, to your God. What is he doing? He's trying to look right before the people that he desperately wanted to respect him. Now it's time for Samuel to apply the theme of listening to and obeying God's word. So we get starting in verse 22, the assertion, and then we get the comparison, and then we get the condemnation. So he starts off with this question, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? What does that question do to us? He's not saying don't sacrifice don't perform what I've told you to perform. And a lot of people use this as an excuse to say that, and that's not what he's saying. He's saying whatever you do in worship that you know you're supposed to do, doing it with your heart right is what matters. You can fool some people, But I know when you come to worship, whether you want to worship me or whether you are putting on the face. And if you've been raised in church, you can play the game. Can't you? You know the right phrases to respond. We even even laugh about this. What's the Sunday school answer? And there's comics that do a hilarious job of saying that if you're in Sunday school, you can come out looking good if you just answer everything. God, 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 God did that. God did this. God did that. And know when to interject, yes, sin. Sin, they do that. I do. Well, you know, we can do it. All of us can do that. And this is one of those passages that just goes right to the heart, which is what the Word of God does. The two-edged sword that divides, that goes in and reveals our motives. Why is that such a revolutionary idea for us? There's not a person amongst us 
who would rather someone that we care about put on a face to us. We want the real person, the real heart. Well, God created us that way because he wants our hearts. Maybe a a quote from the 1700s will help drive this point home. This is nothing new, obviously. In sacrifices, a man offers only the strange flesh of irrational animals, whereas in obedience, he offers his own will, which is rational or spiritual worship. In fact, there's a verse that says that. The point is that external devotion cannot be substituted for internal submission. And another fact is that internal disobedience rarely can be covered up forever. In 1 John 2, verses 3 and six, three to 6, we read this. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's the assertion. Now, we just are getting started because the next couple of phrases show a comparison. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption, which can also be translated several different ways, because there's a lot of English words that come close to this. Presumption, defiance, insubordination, arrogance, That's the idea. Is as iniquity and idolatry. The word rebellion means to flagrantly reject the clear teaching of God's word. It's compared to divination. Do you know what divination is? It's relying on witchcraft, omens, and the occult. And in the Bible, it's punishable by death in the Old Testament. Doesn't that make sense? In order to look for life, direction, and purpose, God wants us to look to him. When you sell your soul to the devil, basically because you want whatever it is you want, that's rejecting the true God for something that you think you can have now without submitting yourself to the true God. So when a person rejects God's word as the only eternal and authoritative truth, the only other options are what is under the power and influence of the evil one, Satan and his demons, and there's only two kingdoms in this realm. 
A true believer has been delivered, we read in Colossians, from the domain of darkness and transferred in Christ into the kingdom of Christ. So if you're the real thing, it's a joy and a privilege to be in the kingdom of Christ. And your life will reflect that. Not perfection, we're not there yet. But it will reflect this love and devotion where you are not two-faced in this regard. What is presumption? What's the verb? It's when we presume that our ideas, our opinions, our actions outweigh everybody else's. We can presume upon the future. In other words, we can do stupid things now thinking that I'll be able to work it out later. We can presume on experiences, on relationships, everything under the sun. Saul considered his own wisdom an improvement on God's command. So you see defiance, you see insubordination, you see arrogance, because that's what presumption is. It is arrogance. Even if it's nicely packaged. I don't think there's anything scarier than somebody who is extremely arrogant and knows how to cover it up enough when you know inside they're just going, I'm getting my way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear this guy down. I'm going to stay right by his side until the time comes, and then it's a knife in the back. And there are, that's sin nature coming out in people. That should not come anywhere close to being left alone in the Christian. It should be gone. It's iniquity and idolatry because he was really worshiping himself. And isn't that what arrogance is? Hey, it's me. It's about me. I'm not, I'm not under anybody's authority. Kids do it by saying, well, I'll stick around here because I can't feed myself and do what I want to do. But when I'm 18, I'm hitting a trail because I can't stand these people I live with. And then it's one trouble after another. The premise here for writing this, for putting this in this passage, is most probably that sin must be correctly identified. We need to call it what it is. Not listening to God's word is is not a failure or a misunderstanding. It's rebellion and arrogance no matter what the excuse may be. It's in the same category then as sheer pagan idolatry. You may have noticed that our society is on this trend of calling everything something else besides what it is. And the things they're calling it, stuff, if it's not sin, 
can't be paid for by the blood of Christ and forgiven. So it's enslaving. It's another excuse. It may be partly true. But we also may be prone to just behave that way anyway. And some things exacerbate it. Yeah, but you can still deal with the underlying issue if it's sin. Well, then in verse 23, the last part, we see the condemnation. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Is that blunt enough for all of us? It's not, well, Saul, you were raised in this family out in the middle of nowhere, and, you know, you grew up, everybody was, everybody kind of liked you, you know, because you were the biggest guy on the field forever. And so, but you didn't have the training. And so, you know, you've messed up a couple of times, and, you know, it's, it's time to maybe start thinking about this because he'd already been addressed over and over and over and over again. And God knew his heart. We don't know people's hearts. Usually, completely, God does. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul did not listen to God's word. He did not obey the clear command. This was not an alternate um, religious understanding. or This was not an expression of theological pluralism. Or We've got so many names for these things now, it's crazy. Or a desire to find his real identity. That's the big one today. It was rebellion... It was arrogance. It was idolatry. To reject God's word is to reject his authority. It's the same thing as rejecting his kingship. What was true of Saul's heart became more and more evident. We've seen it just unfold before us since the beginning. This was who he really was. And no amount of religious posturing could ever cover up his true heart condition. And that is sad. It is tragic. Thank God we have examples of that in the Bible. Because it it's so important to understand. If you know Christ, you know that your heart is the same, basic. That's what God has saved us from, what he has forgiven. Because we are basically that rebellious and arrogant. That's our nature. Even people that have been raised in the most ideal homes in the best situations surrounded by people who care they still have this sin nature 
it's just been covered up and trained a little bit so that it comes across as more civil in that setting. We need Christ. The ultimate contrast with Saul is who? The true king of God's people, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus presented himself to God at the end of his earthly ministry, he could give a report very different from King Saul's. Jesus prayed to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You, you see that cool contrast there? John 17, 4 is where that is. Perf- perfect obedience was the memorial that Jesus erected to his life, not some monument that some guy did after he said he obeyed and he went and built a monument to himself. This is why God accepted Jesus in his ministry on behalf of those who trust him. And the writer of one of our favorite books, Hebrews, explains this. It's a quote from Psalm 40, and it's in Hebrews 10. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. For Jesus to obey really was better than sacrifice. This is why Jesus needed no one to die on his behalf. And it was obedience that it enabled him to be the sacrifice which we need in our place. Our Lord presented himself in the glory of his perfect obedience to which God responded what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Therefore sinners who trust not in Saul but in Christ have a savior and a king in whose name we find salvation. Represented by Christ, we now are called, we're actually called this, the obedience, we're called to this, the obedience of faith. A lot of people would separate those two words so much that they don't even think they're even connected in any way. Are they? So that by faith we might be in Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. What then do we give in gratitude to the God who already has everything? That's a good question. God has everything. What can we give? Does God need sheep or oxen from us? Does he need money or songs or prayers? We should indeed offer these to God in thanks and love. But if we really want to please God, that's the key. If we really want to please God, and what could be more worthwhile in all of life than wanting to please God who saved us? We will do his will 
as it is written in his book, in the name of Jesus Christ, the true and perfectly righteous king who offered no other sacrifice to God than his own obedient life, shedding his precious blood for our sins. We come now to the table of the Lord, the visible and physical reminder of the joy that we have as his people to know him and to have him in our lives. It's also a reminder of the reverence that we're to, we are privileged to give him as we live our lives as his possession. And it's a visible and physical reminder of the faith that we can, by his grace, put in him day by day, no matter what. Christians are his because he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus lived the perfect life demanded of us so that he could be the acceptable sacrifice to die in our place for our sin.